Hello and welcome to the Age of Victoria podcast. My name's Chris Fernandez-Packham. Let's get on with the show. Before we get going today, I want to send you all my best wishes. I know these are troubled times. Humanity feels like it is being tested. For all our remarkable advances, it is amazing that something as small as a virus, really only one piece of DNA or RNA surrounded by a protective coat, can wreck great civilizations and reduce us to helplessness. If there is a theme I've tried to hold to in my shows, it is one of shared humanities. These times will be hard and filled with tragedy, but they will pass. So take care of each other, as that's the best way to take care of yourselves. I will try to put out some bonus content to keep everyone entertained whilst you're locked in your homes or sheds or wherever you are. And I do hope the time passes as swiftly and pleasantly as it can. I've had a listener review from another nun. She says, two star, terrible. Quote, I've only got to episode three. I cannot go any further, despite a real interest in the period. This podcaster has a boring, flat voice, which of course he can do little about. However, each podcast rambles down in uninteresting byways, which really go off topic. This needs someone to edit it. It requires sharpening and brightening. What a shame. End quote. I'm sorry it hasn't hit the spot. Not everyone will like the show, and I hope another nun finds a show they love. I would just say, though, that podcasting takes a long time to master, and whilst my first five episodes weren't very good, I think if someone is going to review a show, they should listen to a few of the latest episodes as well as the oldest, so they can get a fair picture. Well, as I'm isolated for a while, maybe I will get the opportunity to remaster some of those old shows. Perhaps not very likely, since a lot of my quarantine time is actually taken up working from home, my full-time job hasn't finished, and taking care of the children and homeschooling them as well. But, if you have started listening to The Age of Victoria, and it really isn't hitting the spot for you, I recommend trying a couple of other Victorian podcasts. Victorian Scribblers, which covers great works of Victorian literature. They did a mini-series on Victorian adaptation, which included stuff on Victorian medievalism. That is really interesting. Then there's the Very Gay, Very Ladylike, the podcast, which is about the life of the fabulous and fearsome Anne Lister. In fact, you should probably be listening to both those shows anyway, if you are a Victorian history fan. So go check them out. I've had a five-star review from uh, Michael W. Morrissey from the USA, who says, quote, As an American of British parts, I have a great fascination with Victorian Britain. The sun never sets on the British Empire and such. Christopher Fernandez-Packham's presentation is just wonderful 
a great voice with the perfect British delivery. Good on you, sir. Thank you, Michael. I hope you continue to enjoy our journey through the 19th century. Now, let's get on with the show. This is our last show on railways, so let's have some fun. Quote, The night was stormy and dark. The town was shut up in sleep. Only those were abroad who were out on a lark, or those who'd no beds to keep. I passed through the lonely street. The wind did sing and blow. I could hear the policeman's feet clapping to and fro. There stood a potato man in the midst of all the wet. He stood with his tato can in the lonely hay market. Two gents of dismal mien and dank and greasy rags came out of a shop for gin, swaggering over the flags. Swaggering over the stones, these shabby bucks did walk, and I went and followed those seedy ones and listened to their talk. Was I sober or awake? Could I believe my ears? Those dismal beggars spake of nothing but railroad shares. I wondered more and more. Says one, Good friend of mine, how many shares have you wrote for in the Diddlesex Junction line? I wrote for twenty, says Jim. But they wouldn't give me one. His comrades straight rebuked him for the folly he had done. Oh, Jim, you are unawares of the ways of this bad town. I always write for five hundred shares, and then they put me down. And yet you got no shares, says Jim, for all your boast. I would have wrote, says Jack, but where was the penny to pay the post? I lost, for I couldn't pay that first instalment up. But here's Tatters smoking hot, I say. Let's stop, my boy, and sup. And at this simple feast, the while they did regale, I drew each ragged capitalist down on my left thumbnail. Their talk did me perplex. All night I tumbled and tossed, and thought of railroad specs, and how money was won and lost. Bless railroads everywhere, I said, and the world's advance. Bless every railroad share, in Italy, Ireland, France, for never a beggar need now despair, and every rogue has a chance. End quote. That's a poem from Makepeace Thackeray called The Speculators. You probably know him better as the author of Vanity Fair. Like a lot of Victorians, he was intensely aware one of the key drivers of the railway was making money. Not just money for the companies or the engineers or the corrupt politicians. Money for everyone. The railways brought with them one of the greatest stock market frenzies in history. The railway mania, as it was called. It was a really fascinating period where people were trying to buy cheap or even not so cheap shares in new railways to make a fortune. 
you've already seen how much could go wrong building a railway. But the money had to come from somewhere. So some companies issued shares. Investors were hoping they were picking sound schemes that would eventually turn a profit. This railway mania is especially interesting and studied by economists because it's actually a little different from what you might expect. The popular image of a market mania is the tulip mania or the dot-com bubble or stuff like that. One where people were piling in on things in great excitement with almost no understanding of the risks or in many cases what the actual product itself was. But the railways were different. There were plenty of dodgy schemes and unrealistic investors like Thackeray was satirising at the beginning. But modern economists studying the railway mania have noticed that a lot of the investors were knowledgeable and experienced. They had local knowledge too. There was no 24-7 media frenzy to drive the speculation either. So what happened? What caused an extraordinary market frenzy? Market frenzies like this aren't unique in history. There had been a small frenzy in the 1820s over government bonds issued mostly for mining ventures in South America. The world's first passenger railway line, the Liverpool-Manchester, was built during this time and completed in 1830. It coincided with a mini railway speculation boom on the market. The Liverpool-Manchester line opened in September 1830 with a journey by several of the country's grandest dignitaries, including the Duke of Wellington. It also had William Hutchkinson on board. If you remember, I mentioned him all the way back in episode 22, saying that he probably deserves to be better known for the changes he made as head of the Board of Trade rather than his unfortunate death, which I promised would come up in a future episode. Sadly for Hutchkisson, the time for his unfortunate demise has arrived. He was dismissed from his job by the Duke of Wellington, but had successfully backed the Liverpool-Manchester line. The line had been funded by land agent and railway enthusiast William James. Together with Liverpool merchants Joseph Sanders and Henry Booth, he gathered together a committee of merchants, bankers, engineers and politicians. They became the first directors of the line. Hutchkinson was one of these elite groups and when the line opened, it looked like his investment was going to pay off. A profitable railway to deliver passengers and goods at speed to cash in on the industrial boom of the two cities. The opening was designed to be spectacular. Troops helped control the crowds. There were flags and bunting. One passenger noted, quote, carriages, all bedecked with scarlet and gold and filmed with gallant gentlemen and gaudy dames, for all the carriages were open. And there was such flying of flags and such smiling and bowing 
that I was fain to think myself very small sitting on my bench. End quote. When the train stopped to refuel upper class passengers, including Hutchison, ignored instructions to stay on the train. They got off to mingle. Boyd with his triumph, Hutchison used the opportunity to approach the Duke of Wellington to try to get back into favour and perhaps get his old job at the Board of Trade back. Unfortunately, disaster was on the way. Another train was approaching. The nobility were milling around on the tracks, chatting. Trains at this stage didn't have brakes. Drivers just threw the engines into reverse. Worse, the passenger trains didn't have fixed steps up, just temporary steps that got removed. Most passengers were able to scramble back up into their carriages or simply climbed up the grass bank on the edge of the line. But Hushkisson had a bad leg and got confused. He tried to get back into his carriage but couldn't climb. This still didn't need to be a problem. He just had to stand still in the gap between the carriages. There was plenty of passing room. Instead, he frantically opened the door on his carriage, which swung open with him clinging to it, straight into the path of the oncoming train. He landed with a thump, and the train severed his left leg mid-thigh. Observers knew he was a dead man. Perhaps the Duke of Wellington momentarily reflected on how many other men he'd seen lying on the ground with legs severed during his long career and how few lived. Hutchkisson was raced to nearby doctors using the other train at speeds that were probably a land speed record at the time. It didn't help. He died in agony that evening. Today he is mostly remembered for his death on the first passenger railway rather than his achievements in promoting free trade. The Duke of Wellington and the somewhat subdued passengers continued on to their destination. When they arrived, the reception was mixed. The large crowd contained a lot of cheering people who were thrilled at the arrival of the railway and the prospects of progress and wealth. But in the crowd were a lot of people who hated the establishment in general and the Duke of Wellington especially. His carriage was stoned and sharp eyes noticed French revolutionary cockades were being worn by some of the crowd. Wellington had to beat a retreat. Britain remained in a difficult position economically in the 1830s, as you know from the politics episodes. But the railways were a potential chance for something new and incredible. The Liverpool to Manchester line really showed the world that railways could be economic gold mines, from shareholders to politicians to engineers to workers filling new types of jobs that had never existed before in human history. This was how capitalism was supposed to work according to the theories of the day. Capital, seeking the best return on investment, would lead to bigger dividends on the railways, new technologies and new jobs 
to replace the old. There is plenty of evidence for this. The economic impacts were colossal. Newspapers could be printed and delivered miles away the very same day. Unheard of in history before. The speed of the news was suddenly dramatically increased. It wasn't just the British who were now keenly interested in railways. The Americans were beginning to embrace the can-do Yankee know-how ethos that would mark the 19th century. The Baltimore-Ohio line had opened the first 13 miles of line from Baltimore to Ellicott's Mill, which is apparently now Ellicott City in Maryland in 1830. It proved a railway engine could cope with the difficult terrain. The whole world was eventually going to be experiencing the growth of railways, often in the Great Railway Mania or in the future building periods. Where the line was built, though, sometimes came down to money rather than the ideal route. A good example was the Dublin and Drogheda Railway. The idea came from Thomas Prodigan, a businessman in Drogheda, in 1835. He started touring England to study the lines there, consult with engineers and drum up support for railways in Ireland. Eventually, a committee meeting was held in Dublin in August 1835 chaired by an engineer who recommended getting a report from a specialist like George Stevenson. The choice eventually actually settled on William Cubitt, whom we met in episode 26, where he was happily blowing up parts of the White Cliffs of Dover. In this instance, he did a thorough survey and recommended a coastal route up the east coast of Ireland that would then turn inwards towards Drogheda. He reckoned around £650,000, which is about £83 million today when adjusted for inflation. There was substantial opposition from various factions, including a group committed to an inland railway route that would boost trade for inland towns and communities rather than serving the coastal ports. Events degenerated into a bitter dispute that ended up in a parliamentary war. At the Committee of Inquiry, the engineer for the inland route fell apart under cross-examination. His figure of £468,380 was based on incomplete estimates and he was humiliated during testimony over some failures in his previous survey. Other witnesses were called, but they didn't help the case for the inland route, as their evidence showed that the claimed cheaper ticket prices for the inland route left out key facts. In a final, probably unwise decision, their lawyer wrapped up his closing argument by accusing the committee chairman of being biased and favouring the coastal route to support his relatives. This jibe was ignored, but the coastal route was picked anyway. The battle continued, with the Lords of the Admiralty 
having to be placated, individual lords dealt with, and finally victory achieved when Lord Wellington came down decisively in favour of the bill for the coastal route. The cost of this early stage squabble was around £30,000, or £3.8 million to us. That's just to establish the outline route, get through the committee hearing, and get Parliament's approval for the line. On the upside, estimates at this point suggested a profit of around £93,000 a year once the line opened. That happy day was a long way off, since the railway company and the scheme were already financially struggling. Legal threats soon ensued when the chief engineer decided he would reject the company's offer that he forego his salary since the company didn't have the money to start work. By 1837, more inquiries were underway and by 1838, the cost of building the line was estimated at £8,000 a mile, a mind-blowing sum of £1 million in today's money. In 1839, English shareholders were canvassed and feelers were put out to the Chancellor of the Exchequer, but the government was in no mood for a bailout. Still, £262,000 of funds were raised from the English shareholders and local papers encouraged Irish investors to get in on the scheme. Naturally, At this point, the weather turned bad. The lead contractor was found to be selling off company materials on the side and he hadn't paid his navvies, who were building up for one of their famous labour riots. Shareholders in Manchester were duly tapped for another £240,000. New engineers hired and impassioned pleas went out for more Irish investors some far-sighted journalists and politicians were frustrated that Irish businesses and citizens weren't doing more to fund railway development in the country. If it wasn't for English investment, a major line of critical importance might collapse without funds. By December 1839, the company was sure just another £330,000 would finish the job. No doubt sighing deeply, the English shareholders stumped up again. Things seemed to be going well, so the company decided that it had raised too much share capital and what was needed was to write down the value of the shares. This triggered a small war in Parliament as the shareholders took a bit of a haircut but eventually it was sorted out and good times seemed just around the corner. I'm mentioning this in detail so that you can see you didn't just write the scheme down on the back of the napkin and then the navvies would arrive by magic. Just to get onto formal paper and be legally approved could cost a staggering sum of money and it needed investors usually lots of them. Try to imagine then how much 
the more difficult railways would cost to build. The Indian subcontinent would see the formation of the country's oldest railway service, the Great Indian Peninsula Railway, in 1849, and eventually one of the greatest engineering projects, perhaps in history, the construction of the Bahor Ghat, the impossible line, beset by loss of money, brutal officials, and the deaths of over 24,000 Indian workers, as well as the loss of two key engineers. It was only completed because of the intervention of one of the most unexpected and unlikely of people. It is definitely a story for the future. It was clear that any number of railway schemes were possible and could make money in a mere 40 odd years after the hesitant first steps of that first early Liverpool to Manchester railway line, Sir Barton Freer, Imperial Governor of Bombay, opened the Bahor Ghat and proclaimed that India had entered the railway age. His thanks to the Indian workers who had died in the construction process were notably absent. That's often a source of understandable resentment to many modern Indians, although frankly typical of the British ruling class, who didn't particularly care about the British workers who also died on lines in the British Isles either. Every scheme needed money to get started, to make money. It needed investors, people willing to put money down now with the opportunity of a big payoff later. Parliament required 10% financing to be in place at the start of the scheme with a list of published subscribers who were signed up to three quarters of the total building cost. I bet some of those shareholders who signed up for three quarters of the total costs began to regret it deeply if construction hit delays like the Dublin to Drogheda line as the company could constantly come back to them for more money. Since the total cost went up all the time and they remained liable for funding three quarters of it. Selling off the shares might seem particularly attractive at such times but that might not cover the debts and it required someone else to be willing to take your place on what could be the financial scaffold. The pressure on companies to build the lines quickly and keep costs down became enormous. If you were a poor country vicar with three daughters to marry off, railway shares might be a lifeline or a noose. The railways! of the early 1830s had created a mini-mania and a stock market bubble of their own. This had gone bust around 1837. By 1843, a lot of these early railways were being completed. The economy was picking up. Queen Victoria was firmly on the throne with Prince Albert by her side. Sir Robert Peel had been cutting tariffs. Crop yields were up, and even the Bank of England gold bullion reserves were at an all-time high. The stock market 
began to get hot and share dividends from the first wave of railway building were beginning to pay out handsomely. The railways were also boosting the impact of capital investment. There were more options for investing in assets as railways could now move the people and goods quicker. By 1845, the Liverpool-Manchester line was paying a 10% dividend. Banking reforms were piled on top. There was a huge amount of money sloshing around, looking for investment opportunities. To the winners from earlier waves, investing in railways was a no-brainer. Plus, they had already made money, which they wanted to use somehow. Hundreds of new schemes for new railway lines flooded Parliament. In 1845, there were 1,265 potential railway schemes. Investors also knew that the first investment was a long way before the opening of the line, sometimes years. So risks seemed deferred. Everyone knew lines hit some delays, but still paid out over time. It seemed like the perfect investment. A solid technology, one with social benefits and a huge industrial and financial infrastructure supporting it. Most lines were in new areas, so they were almost guaranteed to be profitable, right? So why not buy shares during the initial offering and then sell them on immediately for a higher price? Get in and out early. You can hear the ground creaking beneath our feet already, can't you? In fact, why not take out a loan to buy shares? That makes even more sense. With easy access to capital and a wide range of buyers, a low-interest loan could be a very clever investment. The press stoked to the flames. Initially, there had been three specialist railway papers. By 1845, there were 20, plus numerous pamphlets and adverts for railway shares. Prices doubled between 1843 and August 1845, when shares began to hit their peak. Leveraged investments and derivatives were present, even if the Victorians didn't have a name for them. Now, to be clear, any investment is a risk. Usually, the higher the level of reward, the higher the level of the risk. The value of shares can go down as well as up. In the longest term, share ownership will usually perform better than most other investments. Although, if you want to be super rich, I strongly recommend inheriting money from billionaire parents. For most of human history, if you wanted to be rich, the best way has been to have rich parents. A study shows that some of the richest families in Florence, Italy today were coincidentally descended from the richest noble families in the city in the 15th century. And it's a pattern that repeats. So, imagine how the stock market affected people's view of getting rich in the Victorian era. Suddenly, 
the railways and industrial revolution turbocharged the stock market. The ordinary person genuinely could become really rich. Not by the hard climb of joining the legal profession, advising the king, marrying a daughter to a knight, and then having grandchildren marry an earl, become an archbishop. If you could get together two hundred pound in eighteen forty and buy shares, then sell at the height of that boom in eighteen forty five, well you would have made a staggering amount of money. That meant that people were going into debt to buy shares that might not pay out for long periods, so short selling appeared, and any cost overrun in these mega projects would mean having to raise more capital from shareholders to pay contractors. Of course, companies could cut corners to keep costs down, as you heard in episode 27. But even so, contractors needed pay, and more share issues lowered the value of the shares. Naturally, existing railway companies tried to prevent competitors building lines, which would adversely affect their own share prices. Unfortunately, as new schemes flooded Parliament, people began to realise some of them were in competition with existing lines or other proposed schemes. The returns might be a bit less than hoped. All the signs of a good old-fashioned stock market bubble and complete mania were in place. Some authors declared railways would cure all humanity's problems. Crowds would regularly besiege various stock exchanges, desperate to buy more shares. Even the ever-bribe-hungry Parliament began to feel a bit full and frankly overworked. Taking that many bribes was tiring and the endless railway committees were deeply tedious. Parliament had had enough. They had been handed 565 bills to consider for the statute book, of which they chucked out 300 as being frankly balmy. Even the remaining 265 were an enormous legislative workload. The Board of Trade was told to turn off the taps. It set a hard deadline of the 30th of November 1845 for any final schemes to be submitted for the rest of the parliamentary year. Any scheme that didn't get its plans in in time would be back to square one and most would collapse. It was a sign of mania that the methods of trying to get the plans delivered in time to Parliament devolved into Looney Tunes' wacky races debacles. Train companies realised that their business rivals were on their own trains to London and would deliberately get them to run slow or stop to miss the deadline. Some railway promoters hired special fast trains and nearly set land speed records to get to the London Board of Trade office. Post office delivery men were bribed to lose rival plans. Wheels were loosened on carriages. 
one promoter, desperate to avoid sabotage by rivals, hid the plans in a coffin, hired a hearse, and pretended to be a funeral procession. Then, outside the board of trade, up shot the coffin lid, plans were grabbed out and delivered at the sprint. But there was a big rock beneath the surface, waiting to sink the good times. In 1845, the signs of one of the worst disasters in modern history appeared. The potato blight arrived in Ireland. This was a huge event, and the consequences of it are still with us today. It lives in folk memory, popular culture, and has kept historians busy for their whole careers. I can't go into it here, obviously, but for today... You just need to know that huge amounts of British capital had to be diverted to importing grain. The blight was probably a new type called Herb 1. Before you email me, yes I know it is commonly believed to be caused by Pytopia thora infestans, which is what you would read in most articles. But DNA analysis has identified it as Herb 1. It originated in Mexico and spread to France, Belgium and Holland in 1844, then into Ireland in 1845. It would cause one of the greatest catastrophes in history. The big knock-on was a degree of agricultural panic, since Irish potatoes not only fed the Irish workforce that the railways and armies depended on, but they also fed the Irish beef, which was a principal export from Ireland to England. If Ireland couldn't export food, it would run out of cash. Crashing an economy in the middle of a famine is something to be avoided at all costs. That's enough to cause a wobble on any stock market. Even well-founded and well-planned railway schemes could potentially feel the pressure. But it won't surprise you to learn that not every scheme was a good idea. Managed well and run by an engineering genius like Stevenson or Brunel. If there was one man whose name encapsulated the issue of money in railways, well, it would be George Hudson, the railway king. Born in York, In 1800, he is one of my favourite love-hate figures from the early Victorian period. He was of a type you might recognise if you are an American. Big, loud, can sell sand in the Sahara. An eye for a deal, completely devoid of scruples, only vaguely acquainted with the truth. A corrupt politician who, as the old saying goes... If he wasn't kissing babies to get elected, he was stealing their lollipops. He had an eye for the main chance, happily providing Queen Victoria and Prince Albert with custom-built railway carriages. You could picture him running Tammany Hall, chatting to boss William Tweed, or doing the full P.T. Barnum. He was short but stocky, with a broad Yorkshire accent. He had a bombastic 
and magnetic method of public speaking that left people spellbound. After all, he promised big. No one could build railways as bigly as him. Roll up, roll up. Guaranteed returns. Sensation of the age. A chance not to be missed. In fact, move now before it slips through your fingers. Look at the man next to you. Why, if he gets to the table to buy shares in my railway, before your turn, well, he shall be a millionaire, riding in a carriage instead of you. Don't wait, don't think, don't miss out. And Lord, how the money poured in. Yes, you can see he was a complete crook, larger than life. He was born into a Methodist family, then switched to being a classic high church Tory. He got a sizeable inheritance, which he used to invest in £30,000 of railway shares in 1827. He then became chairman of the same railway company. He took advantage of the deregulation of banking in 1833 to open his own bank. That must have seemed sensible, since people realised he had a gift for money and accounting. He was such a genius with a balance sheet that lesser people somehow found it hard to follow where everything was. He made the figures dance. He soon became a councillor in York and also set up his own railway company. So therefore, he ran the bank for the loans, the railway for the building and the local politics for getting round any obstacles. What could go wrong? The thing is, he was pretty good at building railways. At least he seemed to be. His work with the West Riding Line was a success after raising £446,000 in 1839. And together with George Stevenson, he carried out the extension of the York and North Midlands Railway to Newcastle. A huge success. Hudson used Stevenson's name as a respected engineer to bolster his own image, although the two eventually had a falling out. By the height of his career, in the 1840s, he would own a quarter of the entire British railway system. He ruthlessly bought up smaller companies to take over as much of the market as possible. That's bad in some ways, as it was building monopolies. But, to play devil's advocate, the government of the 1840s wasn't interested in a national railway network or even common railway standards. Hudson brought a measure of standardisation, consolidation and convergence to the chaos. And for that, we should all be very thankful. This guy was swinging big, though. If you lived in the 1840s, you had certainly heard of him. But today, he is virtually unknown. Dickens hated him, saying, quote, I'm disposed to throw up my head and howl whenever Mr. Hudson's name is mentioned. End quote. Hudson paid the staggering sum of £3,000 in bribes alone to various MPs for just one of his schemes. One of his particular scams 
was buying up land, then proposing a railway line across it and demanding huge compensation figures as the landowner. Then popping his company director hat on and saying, yes, of course, my railway will damage your land. You're charging fair price, so I'll certainly pay up. Another favourite financial trick was to move some of the costs of the railway line from the day-to-day operations to the capital account. The capital account of a business is supposed to pay for one-off big-ticket fixed items, like, say, a railway station or an engine. By putting everyday operating costs into the capital account, he was making the costs of the daily business look smaller and the profits would therefore look higher. This brought in more investors. It should go without saying that's fraud. As a bonus, the extra profits could be used to pay out higher dividends to shareholders. This increased the value of the shares themselves. As Hudson himself was a major shareholder, he benefited enormously. You might notice that apart from the dodgy accounting and fraudulent parts, it is fine for a director to hold shares and benefit from similar windfalls today. That's why huge companies can make enormous payouts to executives and then claim to run out of money somehow. Some giant companies today, like Wells Fargo, have committed scandalous financial practices and hugely enriched their CEOs and executives. So don't assume this was all a uniquely Victorian problem. Crime and money go hand in hand. Hudson also committed the great crime of any dodgy financier. Funding payouts to future investors from the capital of previous schemes. A giant Ponzi scheme, but over multiple companies. Of course, these things always show up in the accounts, but it just so happens that Hudson knew a man at the bank who could certify on those accounts. His name was G. Hudson too. Now, that's the kind of dodgy financial dealing that guarantees access to the highest levels of the British establishment. And he was duly introduced to the Queen and Prince Albert. Why not? His reputation was enormous. People trusted him. He was a railway expert. No, he was the railway expert. And Prince Albert wanted to meet him. Hudson was building a railway network, fit for the modern age. Investors were seeing amazing returns. He had practically invented new ways of investment. Surely he was a genius. It stood to reason. Most people couldn't keep up or understand the details. That was the real problem. He brazenly signed deals without consulting company directors or committees. One board meeting is infamous for his view on corporate oversight. Quote, How now, gentlemen? said Mr. Huston. Has anything happened? Only, replied one, that we are being equally responsible with yourself for what is done, are desirous of knowing the nature of your plans. You are, are you? rejoined the railway monarch. Then you shall not. End quote. 
he still made money for shareholders. His railways were splendid. So why would anyone want to upset the apple cart? Still, as time passed, people began to ask questions about the money. When challenged, an angry Hudson would sometimes leave meetings in a rage, leaving his subordinates to explain where the money had gone. One company set up a committee of inquiry and arrived to hold their first meeting, only to find Hudson had gatecrashed it. He bluntly informed them, as it was his company, he was entitled to set the date for the start of the inquiry. Which he'd get to. Yep, he'd absolutely set a date and tell them. So get lost. He had railways to build. Put a pin in it and have your people call my people sometime. He began to realise things were looking dicey, even with his high-handedness. His personal enemy, George Lehman, was appointed to investigate those accounting irregularities. Lehman was delighted, since he was a bitter rival in politics and railway building. Lehman was a grocer's son from York, who became a lawyer, and he had a grim determination to expose financial scandal. So, like any good opportunist, when the vultures are circling, Hudson went into national politics and became an MP proper in 1845. This provided some protection. MPs couldn't be arrested for debt when the House of Commons was sitting. That was to protect them from creditors and from overmighty monarchs throwing them in jail on dubious pretexts. But when Parliament was in recess, Hudson bunked off to France or Spain to avoid his creditors. The House of Cards was well and truly tumbling down now. Worse, in 1853, a court delivered a bombshell order. He was to explain his accounts and provide details of which politicians he had bribed. His political collections were ephemeral. Queen Victoria met a lot of people at balls or in audience rooms, but it took a lot more than a brief bow and a chat to Albert about improved steam engines to actually get access to royal protection, which at this stage was probably all that could have saved Hudson. Why would Queen V have remembered a dodgy railway promoter and then decided to stick her neck out for him? No senior politician cared enough to lobby the Queen, even if Hudson had been stupid enough to ask. Besides, her royal powers would have been somewhat limited. She could probably have offered to pay off his debts and dropped a discreet word that a potential prosecution would have been most unwelcome. But this wasn't Tudor England, where royal favour mattered more than most laws. Also, Victoria wasn't the sort. She was honest. She hated that kind of royal misbehaviour, and Albert would have had a heart attack at the very suggestion. Financial dishonesty of any kind appalled him. Nor was Hudson the sort who might have been appointed a colonial governor to get him out of trouble. In 1859, Hudson lost his seat at an election. He was now just a private citizen, and his many, many creditors wanted their pound of flesh. He fled to France to escape. In 1865, he returned to England to try to get re-elected, 
but was arrested by his creditors before he could stand for election and was thrown into jail at York. He was only let off the hook because it was clear to them that he was completely out of any real money and there was no blood to be squeezed from this stone. His friends paid off what debts they could. I often wonder about that. He had kept his mouth shut about his co-conspirators even when he was in jail. Maybe a few people had special reasons to be grateful even at the end. He died aged 71 in a modest house, his vast country estates long since confiscated. He was a crook of the highest order, who fleeced people and bribed as needed. But he did have the star touch that got railways off the paper into reality. Incidentally, Lehman was a bit of a character in his own right. He became very wealthy and a powerful railway baron, but lost money in mining ventures. He also became an MP, and crucially was a proud man of York, where he initiated the renovation of its historic walls. So history fans all owe him a big thank you. We mustn't overstate the role of Hudson and men like him in the mania. Certainly he boosted some railway share prices and drove a high number of schemes, but there were a lot of schemes that were nothing to do with him. And some of his schemes were actually very good. The various select committees looking into his finances can't have helped investor confidence, but they paled in comparison to the Irish famine and the destabilising effect of the European revolutions in 1848. Investors weren't making money anymore. Schemes got abandoned and millions of pounds were lost. Some studies even argue that most railways never made money for the actual investors, although railways overall drove huge economic gains. In some ways, this is similar to the original dot-com bubble in the early days of the internet, where lots of companies promised the moon. Investors lost tons, and the utility of the internet itself drove massive secondary economic changes and benefits that we're still reaping today. In fact, once other factors and investments are accounted for, the railway shares themselves weren't really overpriced compared to the shares of other companies and products in the period. Historians and economists argue quite bitterly about the mania and its causes. Some say it was much like the tulip mania, fueled by naive investors who were jumping on rising stock prices that had no foundation in reality. Others will say the principal reason was people like Hudson and other speculators. Dodgy financiers inflated a stock market bubble, then pocketed the gains and left the rest to pick up the pieces. In an era of unrestrained markets and crony capitalism corrupting political systems, others will emphasise the impact of global events, especially the Irish famine and the year of revolutions, which turned a slightly overheated market into a massive collapse. As I've made clear, I'm not a professional historian, and I personally feel historians who emphasise it was a blend of things rather than one principal cause are probably most likely to be right. Eventually, the dust settled. Some modern economists argue that in strictly economic terms, it wasn't a mania at all. Prices rose and fell dramatically, but were in line with the prices for other assets and types of decline of the period. Some people lost money, some people made a lot. 
Overall, it is very hard for railways to make money long term, but they can make a profit in key instances. Ultimately, a lot of railway lines are socially necessary, but can never be run at a profit, and it is foolish to try. They need subsidies, either from more profitable lines or from government in some form. But when the mania over, trains were part of the fabric of the nation and the empire. The age of the highwaymen had been dying for some time, but the railways killed them off. The rich began to travel almost exclusively by train, rather than the old dangerous roads out of London. Even the poor were able to travel further and faster than they ever had before. Okay, I think we've all done enough finance for today. I hope you've enjoyed the show. We've done quite a lot on railways. And there's one last little bit I'd like to squeeze in, but it would make the episode too long today. So I'm going to release it as a mini-sode this month, which should provide a little boost for you and keep you entertained whilst you're locked down, as well as the other bits I've got planned. Hope you all keep going and keep a stiff upper lip. Take care and bye for now. If you want to give me some feedback or just have a chat or ask any questions, you can email me at ageofvictoriapodcast at gmail.com or on Facebook on the Facebook page or in the group just search for Age of Victoria if you want more of an informal social chat or a bit of banter follow me on Twitter at Age of Victoria take care and bye for now